Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our first study in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, I've entitled it Galatians, A Call to Freedom. And what we'll be doing today in this first study is just simply looking at the background and the introduction. We'll get into maybe uh, nine or ten, the first nine or ten verses of the letter. Uh, we'll get into the meat of the letter in, beginning, in our, beginning in our next study. You should have before you a, uh, a copy of the notes and the outline and you should have a map as well with a few notes on it. And the map is entitled The Apostle Paul's First Missionary Tour. So if you don't have those, there are some available here. Just uh, just grab one. Uh, just by way of historical background, remember that uh, Jesus gave the Great Commission uh, in A.D. 30, as best we can tell. That was the time of His crucifixion and uh, resurrection and subsequent ascension. Uh, and notice what He said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Notice this make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's Jesus' marching orders to His disciples and His marching orders to us as well. Uh, it is interesting to note that uh, that next passage from Revelation chapter 5, uh, when everything comes to its uh, climax uh, in, uh, in terms of time and space, notice what it says there. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So notice uh, Jesus' commission is to go to all the nations and to make disciples. And at the end of time, at the time of Christ's return, uh, there is a song sung in heaven saying that He has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So what Jesus has commissioned us to do will be accomplished uh, sometimes uh, with us and sometimes in, in spite of our efforts and a lot of that uh, in spite of uh, we're going to be talking about here. This this should not have been a, a new thought to the Jews of Jesus' day simply because um, when you think about the Abrahamic covenant which uh, took uh, which traces back to about the 19th century B.C. Notice what... Uh, 
Moses has written for us there in Genesis chapter 12, in those first three verses, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, that was, remember, Abram's name means exalted father, and the irony is that he had no children. Uh, Later his name would be changed to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. Uh, And at the time his name was changed, he still had no children. But it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Of course, we know that that turned out to be Canaan. He goes on to say, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And then notice that, notice the the phrase there at the end of verse 3. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just the Jewish people, but all the families would be blessed. Now, how ultimately did that happen? And that's, of course, through the coming of the Messiah and through the proclamation of the gospel, which was to go out all around the uh, around the world. And and uh, Paul is going to uh, talk about uh, all those who have faith in Christ are sons, <clears throat> spiritual sons of Abraham. But the point I'm making is that the Jews should have been aware of this, particularly the Jewish leaders, because they were real familiar with the uh, with the Torah. And you even find things like this uh, in the prophets. For example, in uh, Isaiah chapter 49, and Isaiah lived around the 7th century B.C., and here it says, And now the Lord says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you... And this is a messianic... Excuse me, I'm having a little trouble with my voice today. Uh, I will make you, and this is uh, a messianic promise, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So, So again... It should not have been a surprise that when Jesus gave His Great Commission, uh, it would not only include proclaiming the Gospel to Jews, but also to Gentiles as well. But as we shall see, that was a real difficulty, and I suspect that much of that difficulty... um, probably uh, centered around their traditions. Uh, We're all far more comfortable with the familiar and to go out for for a Jew to go out among the Gentiles would have been uh, very strange indeed for some of them. Uh, Jesus' own preaching... also taught this as well, the passage from John 10, the very familiar passage in which Jesus talks about being the uh, the shepherd of the sheep and also being the gate for the sheep. In John chapter 10, verse 14 and following, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And then notice what he says. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now when he said, I lay down my life for the sheep, he's talking to a Jewish audience at the time. So he's talking about his people among the, among the Jews, that is those who would believe in him. But he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, of course, it, I think it's clear to me at least, and I think it would be to you as well, that he's talking about uh, believers among the Gentiles. Gentiles, those uh, Gentiles who would embrace uh, him as Messiah. Uh, I will. Uh 
He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. You know, there is some teaching today that uh, that God has two people, that there's a, the, the Jewish people are an earthly people, and the church is a heavenly people. But that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that there ultimately would just be one people, and that is those who are trusting in Him, and He would bring them from among Jews, and from among Gentiles and bring them together into into one body. So, the summary of, of all of this is, is this, and that is from the very beginning, God's gracious plan of salvation in Christ, uh, and in Christ alone, I might add, has included everyone, everyone who will trust in Him regardless of their ethnicity, no matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. So I think uh, before we begin to uh, get into anything else, the first missionary journey of, of Paul as a background for what he's going to write to the Galatians, I want to just do a sort of a, a little chronological overview of what the early evangelism was like. Now, we get that picture primarily from the, uh, from the book of Acts. The divine mandate was in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus, just before His ascension, said, but you to the disciples who were gathered there at the time of His ascension, He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And then he names the places where they would be witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And of course, the, the end of the earth would be the Gentiles. Now, why didn't Jesus say, uh, you will be my witnesses in Atlanta and in, uh, and in all of Georgia? Well, because that's not where they were. He's saying, look, start where you are in Jerusalem, and then you're going to work your way out into Judea. Now, the, the people in Jerusalem and the people in Judea certainly would have... Uh, Shared the same traditions and background as the uh, as the disciples to whom Jesus was giving this commission at the time, and then eventually you're going to go out to the Samaritans who were sort of a who were familiar with Jewish traditions, but uh, it was uh, the Samaritans were considered to be sort of. Uh, uh, crossbreeds almost, and I, I hate using that terminology, but uh, remember that the Samaritans had come from the time that uh, after the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity, there were people who came back and settled uh, above uh, north of Judea and intermarried with the people who were living there, and they came to be known as the Samaritans. In fact, Samaria was the, uh, was the capital of that area. But they would have been familiar with Jewish traditions since there, since there was a lot of intermarriage. But, uh, and then ultimately you go to the Gentiles, and of course the Gentiles would have been clueless uh, as far as anything concerning the, uh, the Old Testament, the Torah, uh, any of those kinds of things. So the divine mandate is to go and eventually you're going to reach the whole world, but don't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. So, it's going to begin in Jerusalem. And that's what uh, Acts chapters 2 through 7 are all about. Uh, most of that takes place around A.D. 30 to 31. And uh, the gospel is going out to Jews and to Jewish proselytes. And as the gospel went out, the 
persecution began to break out against these people. Now, remember, early on they were not called Christians. They were called uh, people of the way. And uh, they apparently got that name from what Jesus said about being the way and the truth and the life. But they were known as the people of the way. And as far as many people, particularly the Romans, when they looked when they looked at this new group, this sect of that we call Christians, they just viewed them as just another uh, offshoot of uh, of Judaism. Uh, they didn't they didn't make any sort of real distinction. But persecution broke out. And when it did, then the gospel began to spread. And it spread from Jerusalem and Judea and began to go into Judea and ultimately in Samaria. And that's what we find in Acts chapters 8 through 12. That took place, oh, beginning around A.D. 31 and lasted up till around 44 before the gospel began to go beyond that. The, the church was scattered uh, except for the apostles. Again, uh, I think the 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 believing Jews, the one who ones who had embraced Jesus, uh, although they loved Jesus and they sought to obey Jesus there around Jerusalem and Judea, the truth is is that they going beyond that was just going beyond their uh, their comfort zone. I, I remember, I'll just give you a little quick anecdote here. I, I remember years ago, uh, after the Lord uh, saved me, uh, I was a... a Carol and I joined a, a little church and we got involved with a, a group called the Navigators. That was when the Navigators first began to get involved with uh, community ministry. And so the guy who was uh, mentoring me uh, said, look, he was teaching Sunday school and uh, at that church, and he said, look, he said, let's uh, let's do this. Let's let's get the name of all the visitors who come to this come to our church. And he said, let's call and make appointments, and we'll go out with them, and we'll do three things. First thing we'll do that we want to do more than anything else is to share the gospel with them. Second thing is is we want to invite them to come back to church, and thirdly, we want to invite them to get involved in some sort of little. Uh, Bible study uh, so that we can uh, we can you know fulfill the great commission and I, I thought well that's that sounds great so I remember the first time we went out we had made we had made appointments so we weren't going in cold turkey uh, when you know, folks didn't have their, all the clothes on, or maybe they were in the middle of supper. They were expecting us at a specific time, and so uh, I remember we pulled up in front of front of these folks' house, and uh, you know, I started to get out. And he said, "Well, wait a minute. We we need to pray first. And uh, and he started praying, and while he was praying, I was thinking, uh, my prayer would be, "Oh God, please don't let them be at home," because it was a little unnerving. See, that was that was out of my comfort zone. I was not used to doing things like that, and I think that's probably where these uh, where these people who were accustomed to to talking to folks of their own ethnic. Uh, group uh, were at the time but what does God do 
In order to fulfill that commission, God turns up the heat. Second thought, law of thermodynamics. You increase the heat, you get expansion. And so He turned up the heat in terms of persecution and uh, used persecution in order to scatter the church. And you had people like Philip, who originally had, uh, well, and still was a, a deacon, um, who was out ministering. Uh, I put a couple of verses in your notes there from Acts chapter 8. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. That's, again, the capital uh, of, that, uh, of that area. And he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. What happened was that Philip started went to uh, the Samaritans. He started preaching. And what did God do? God started saving people. Wow, well... Now all of a sudden, uh, the the only people who uh, essentially stayed in Jerusalem at the time of the persecution were the apostles. They were sort of the home office. And it tells us uh, later on in Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So here, we're going to send this delegation up there to uh, to Samaria who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for He had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this unnerves some people when, you, when, they, when they read this, but I think there's a, there's a good explanation for it. <clears throat> when, when we... Uh, when we call on the name of the Lord to save us, when we believe in the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us at that moment. In fact, uh, we, we're born again. Uh, we're recreated. We're given, new, we're given a new heart. We have a new spirit within us. All that takes place. So what's the deal? What's the deal here that it sounds like the Samaritans were saved, but they had not received the Holy Spirit? So what's going on here? Well, let me just mention a couple of things about uh, the, the book of Acts. Remember this, first of all, that the book of Acts is a transitional um, sort of book. Uh, it's a historical sequel to Luke's Gospel. It's, it's a bridge, as it were, between the Gospels and the New Testament epistles. It, it describes those first 30 years or so, um, I'll say between A.D. 30 and about 62 after, after Christ's uh, death and resurrection and ascension. And um, the the but the book is but the book is transitional. Remember that one of the things that Paul wrote when he wrote to the uh, when he wrote his first letter, what we call the first letter to the Corinthians, in First Corinthians chapter one verse twenty two, he said the Jews seek after signs, and it's the the Greeks who seek after wisdom. I'm convinced, and I believe you can you can trace it through the scriptures, is that what's happening here is there was so much distrust between Jews and Samaritans, and and we know that from the things that Jesus told us about that. That the reason for this, uh, for this occurrence, where uh, the delegation Peter and John go to pray for these folks, 
and they have this same experience that the Peter and John and all of the other the other 118 in that upper room along with Peter and John they had the same experience that they had had on the day of Pentecost that way it was proof to them that what the Samaritans had was exactly the same thing as what the Jews had because you 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 only find this occurring about two or three different times in the uh, in the book of uh, in the book of Acts uh, so I think that probably helps to explain it a little bit. And remember this, that Acts is a, is a historical book, that is, it's a descriptive book. Uh, it's not a didactic or prescriptive book. Uh, Luke's emphasis is always on what people have experienced. Uh, he, he accurately writes down what, uh, what some of the sermons were that they, that they preached. But the emphasis is on what people experienced. And if you want to develop your doctrine, if you want to develop policy and and what is pop, proper practice, we need to go to the uh, uh, to the letters that are written uh, the New Testament letters because they're the ones uh, those are the documents that that establish uh, practice and policy. Uh, for example. You remember one of the things that happened in the early church is that the, the all the members of the, the most of the members of the church were voluntarily giving up everything and they were living communally. That that was going on in Acts chapter four. Well, was that the norm? Is that the kind of thing that we ought to be doing today? Is it every time somebody comes to Christ, well, you just you just cash in all of your chips uh, and we all kind of live together and sing kumbaya? I, I don't I don't. Think Think that's the case, and so that's that's the same thing that's going on with this uh, with this event um, where Philip has preached, and then Peter and John go up there, and uh, and again we're going we're going to see this happen uh, several times. Um, now in AD 34, that's about the time that uh, Saul of Tarsus was converted, and we were uh, we don't need to rehash that, but you remember he had that experience on the road to Damascus. And then uh, there were a number of silent years. In fact, there were about 14 years before Paul really gets involved in uh, in ministry uh, that uh, that is recorded for us. It says uh, in Acts chapter 11. Uh, and by this time, the whole emphasis of the book of Acts has shifted from Jerusalem and Judea all the way up to Antioch, Syria. Uh, what had happened was the the Lord started doing tremendous things up in Antioch, and the Lord was saving a lot of folks. And Antioch became the great sending church. That's where all three of Paul's missionary tours um, began. Was at that church at uh, at Antioch. Now let's just read a little bit about that in Acts chapter eleven, verses nineteen and following. It says, "Now those who were scattered because of the." persecution uh, that arose over Stephen remember that was the that was he was the first church martyr Stephen was 
and uh, and who was it that was holding the coats? And uh, at the time, all the stones were being thrown. Yes, that was Saul of Tarsus who was uh, who was doing that. He was giving his approval. In fact, remember at the time that the Lord saved him, he was on his way to Damascus, Syria, in order to um, to capture more. Uh, well, we call them Christians, but capture more members of the way and bring them back to either prison or to be stoned to death for blasphemy or whatever but but anyway it says uh uh, now, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Notice, again, we're just comfortable with the familiar. So here are people who are, who are moving northward and uh, particularly westward as well, uh, but they're sort of limiting their sharing and their witnessing to the Jewish people. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, who in the world are the Hellenists? Well, the Hellenists were Jews, but they were Jews... What's the best way to express? Okay, let me let me let me explain it this way. So, uh, one of the first controversies that really arose in the church was with the distribution of resources among the widows. There were widows who were Hebrews through and through, and then there were Hellenistic Hebrews. The Hebrews who were through and through were the ones who were born uh, into the uh, into the uh, into the Jewish ethnicity, I guess, for lack of a better terminology. The uh, the Hellenists were those who had returned uh, along, and they and their ancestors their ancestors had returned many years ago from Babylon. And when they came back, they settled down not in Judea but north of Judea, and they had been impacted greatly by Greek culture. Remember when. Uh, uh, Alexander the Great conquered the then known world. One of his uh, one of his intentions, one of one of his uh, desires, was to Hellenize the world. That is to fill the world with Greek culture. Well, that's. <clears throat> That's the people he's talking about here. They're Jews, but they're Jews who have been enculturated into uh, into Greek culture. He says, so uh, uh, on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Now, see, this sounds like just uh, it sounds again like what happened with Philip. You know, Philip a priest in Samaria, the home office sent some guys up there. Now, and this time it says the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas originally was from Cyprus. So, uh, and he, he was a Jew and uh, it says when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. 
And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. Now see, here, here you've got Gentiles in, in Antioch, Syria, who were coming to Christ. Well, what sort of background do they have in terms of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament? They, they, wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have any. None whatsoever. And so the advantage of having men like Barnabas and particularly Saul of Tarsus to come and teach them for a year. By this point, Saul has uh, has had his revelation that he's going to talk about uh, regarding the gospel. He's had a clear call to be an apostle of the Lord, but he's been just sort of, as it were, waiting in the wings. Probably meant doing some sort of ministry there in Tarsus, but he's he's been there all this time. But, you know, if, if he's saved, uh, if the Lord saved him around A.D. 34, this is around oh 47, 48, somewhere along that time frame. So you know, sometimes we think that the that the that the Lord ought to get busy and use us more quickly than uh, than than we think he is is doing. Uh, but in this case, by having Saul of Tarsus come and teach, remember, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, or he had been, and he uh, he would know the Old Testament, and he would know those passages, and how the ones that talked about the Messiah, that they all pointed to Jesus. Uh, so this is going to be a tremendous year for the people in Antioch as uh, Barnabas and Saul of Tarsus are preaching to them. Now, meanwhile... During this very same time period, there was something that happened uh, with Peter. Remember, there was a, a, a Roman centurion named uh, Cornelius who uh, lived, uh, uh, or who was who was stationed there along the uh, along the seacoast at, at Caesarea. That's uh, that was the governor's uh, headquarters, and it was also a, a place for a, a huge installation of Roman soldiers. Well, this, and we're going to talk more about Cornelius in a in a in a different context in, in a couple of three sessions from now. But Cornelius uh, had had this vision where the Lord told him, said, you need to send uh, to Joppa to a man named Simon Peter and, and ask Simon Peter to come here and tell you some things. Now, Cornelius was, uh, was uh, the Bible tells us, uh, Luke tells us in, uh, in uh, Acts chapter 10 that he was a devout man, that he was giving money to the Jewish people, he was, uh, he was a prayer warrior, he was doing a lot of things. He, was, uh, he sounded like a perfect church member that we'd like to have today, but the truth is, is he had one huge problem, and that was in spite of all these things he was doing, he, still, he just didn't know the Lord. He was, he was still unsaved. And so the Lord says, I want you to send to Simon Peter, who's in Joppa, and uh, he, he's going to tell you what you need to know. Well, uh, at around the same time, the Lord gave Peter a vision when he was in Joppa. He was uh, he was sitting up on a rooftop waiting for lunch to be fixed, uh, and he had this vision of this sheep coming down with all kind of unclean animals, and this voice came out of heaven and said, "Kill and eat." And Peter said, "No, no way! I've never eaten anything like that, and I'm not about to start now." And the vision happened several times, and finally the voice said to Peter, "said Look, what I call clean, don't you call unclean?" 
And that was, uh, Peter didn't understand that at the time, but it was a coded message that God was going to do something in the life of this Gentile soldier uh, named Cornelius, uh, this centurion. And so, uh, and, and the Lord told Peter said, look, there's some guys that are going to come up, don't have any reservations about going with them. You go and uh, I'll tell you what you need to tell them. So Peter got there finally to uh, to Caesarea, got to Cornelius' house, and they boy Cornelius had a crowd. I mean, he had he had the place just full of folks, and said, "Okay, you just go ahead and tell us what it is that the Lord Peter, whatever it is that the Lord told you to tell us." And Peter begins to preach the gospel, and he can't even finish his sermon until all the all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls, and and all these folks start. Uh, speaking in tongues. Now, the great thing that Peter had done when when he left Joppa to go to Cornelius' house is he took a half dozen of his Jewish brothers with him. And so they were all there and saw what happened. But again, what's going on? Here we see that... Uh, that the Lord is showing these Jews that the same thing that this Gentile Roman centurion, this soldier got, was exactly the same thing that the folks in Samaria had gotten, and it was the same thing that the original disciples and apostles had gotten on the day of Pentecost. There was no difference whatsoever. And... Uh, uh, Peter even stayed there a few days uh, to to teach them some things, and uh, as we'll see later on, he got in the doghouse with uh, some folks at the home office about hanging out with Gentiles. But that ties in a little bit later with our story that we're talking about today. Well. That was in Acts chapter 10 and 11, and uh, so that brings us uh, finally to Acts 13 and 14, which is where the missionary journeys of uh, of uh, Paul begin. And so I want us to look at just a few things. We don't have time to spend; we can't spend a lot of time looking at the uh, at the missionary journey, at this first missionary journey. But we do want to look at uh, the things that pertain to this letter that uh, that Paul. Paul wrote. Uh, the first missionary journey took place probably around AD 48 to 49. It lasted about a year and a half, maybe as long as two years, so it's possible it could have started as early as 47. Uh, and so uh, there were. Uh, I guess I guess we need to take a moment and just talk about who the players were in uh, in terms of uh, of this missionary tour. Uh, the tour itself was composed. Uh, the leader of the tour originally was Barnabas, and uh, at that time Saul of Tarsus was still referred to as Saul of Tarsus. And Barnabas uh, also took a, they took along with him Barnabas. Uh, I believe it was his nephew, who uh, whose name was John Mark. He is not. He is the John Mark, the Mark who wrote the uh, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, he he bailed early on in the uh, in the uh, in the missionary tour. But we'll talk about that as well as a minute. Those are essentially are the protagonists in the story. The antagonists basically were were two groups. One was uh, the Jews themselves. When when Paul 
Paul and, and Luke as well use the term Jews in their writing, generally they're referring to the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, that is, unless the context is real clear that they're referring to the to the broader ethnic group. So there were there were there were Jews, real Jews, who got real upset and were very antagonistic with what uh, Barnabas and Saul of Tarsus were were preaching on this missionary tour. The second group of people uh, who were antagonistic was a group of people called Judaizers. Now that term is not used in the new in the new uh, in the New Testament. I don't recall that it is anyway. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as the circumcision party. Uh, doesn't sound like much of a party, does it? But uh, they were professing. Jewish Christians who insisted that Gentile Christians observe Jewish religious uh, uh, customs. Uh, they agreed that uh, it was necessary for a person to have faith in Christ in order to be saved, but they also insisted that a believing Gentile, um, believing Gentile males be circumcised and that they keep the Mosaic law. Uh, that's brought out in Acts chapter 15 verse 1 where it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers at Antioch, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these, these um, Judaizers were professing, they were Jews, but they were professing believers. Uh, probably some were and were just... Uh, just misled others were professors but not real possessors of the uh, of the truth and essentially they were saying that faith in Christ alone is just simply not enough if you're going to uh, if you're going to come to faith you're going to have to come and and it is important to trust in Jesus but the only way you can come to Jesus is via Moses you've got to come by the by the way of the law so this is uh, this is one of the things that really uh, provoked and brought about the writing of Paul's letter to the Galatians, because uh, there were questions that uh, that were that had arisen by these Judaizers and saying, "Well, remember this? Who, who, who is this guy? Paul said he's not one of the original twelve. Well, that was true. He was not. Said uh, uh, you know." He didn't see Jesus. Uh, Jesus didn't speak to him directly, and but Paul's going to talk about the revelation that he got from the Lord. And they were also accusing Paul of watering down the gospel because they, because Paul was preaching that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That you didn't that the Gentiles didn't have to keep the law. Nobody's got to keep the law. All you got to do is just trust in the Lord Jesus. And so there were accusations of watering down the gospel. Well, if you look at that map. Uh, I've got a few little notes written on the map, and we'll just quickly uh, look at some of those, although we won't have time to look at all of them. Again, the time frame here is probably around A.D. 48 to 49. Um, Saul of Tarsus, and uh, who later came to be known as Paul and Barnabas, were ministering there at the church in Antioch, Syria. And during that time, it tells us... Um, uh, that some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. This is in uh, Acts 
chapter 11, verse 26 and following. It says, During this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. They, this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, that is, taken the money that was collected from the Gentile church, taking it down to Judea to help the, the, the Jewish church, the, the members of the church who were Jewish, uh, who were suffering from the famine, when that mission was over, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So they took Mark back with them. They went back to Antioch. And then in Acts chapter 13, it tells us, beginning at verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Notice, boy, this is a real mixed group. And while they were worshiping the Lord... And fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice, God is the one who called them. The church simply recognized their call and confirmed that call. And because they confirmed it, here's what they did. It says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Seleucia was the uh, was a seaport city uh, just to the south of Antioch. So you can see from the map, they, they leave Seleucia, they sail over to Cyprus, uh, they do some work there, and then they, then they head northwest where they land uh, at, uh, in this area called Pamphylia. And uh, this is, uh, and notice it's in Pamphylia uh, in Acts 13, 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that's in Cyprus, and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, why did John leave? The Bible doesn't tell us. Was he ill? Was he homesick? Was he afraid? Well, uh, it's possible that the, it, now this is only possible. This is only another possibility. It's possible that the change in the leadership uh, uh, was the reason he left. We we just honestly don't know. It is about this time, though. Up until this time, when Barnabas and Saul are mentioned, it's always Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. And about this time, just about the time that uh, John Mark deserts the mission. There's a change in the way that Luke writes it, and he begins to talk about Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. In other words, Paul begins to uh, to take the lead. But they land there in Pamphylia. They um, they proceed into southern Galatia, which is a province in what today is uh, south central Turkey, where they preached the gospel and ran into all kinds of significant uh, opposition by Jewish religious leaders. And incidentally. Don't let the uh, let the fact uh, confuse you. There are two Antiochs here. The the the, the uh, tour, the missionary tour, began in Antioch, Syria, but there's another little Antioch in Pisidia called. Uh, 
Pisidian Antioch. How about that? Uh, and that was one of the places, uh, one of the four places that we know for sure that Paul and Barnabas went um, to Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe uh, there in Galatia. And that's where they preached the gospel. And when they get back and Paul writes this letter, it's a circular letter and he is writing it to these four churches uh, in that area. It was to be circulated among those uh, among those churches. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, when while they are at Pisidian Antioch, there is intense persecution that broke out. Let me just, let's just read a few verses just to get a, the flavor of it. Um, but let's just skip down to verse 44, Acts 13. It says, "The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him." And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Uh, remember when Paul later would write Romans, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation uh, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And again, it's that idea of you start at the home base, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the world. That's why... Uh, Paul in these in these missionary tours would uh, would generally start in synagogues. He he loved he loved his own Jewish people. In fact, there's there's one point in his writings where he said, "I could I could wish myself damned to hell if it would uh, if it would mean the salvation of my my people, the Jews." It says, uh, but they were reviling Paul in verse uh, well, let's see, 46. says, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. In other words, you just close your mind to this whole idea of Jesus. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's, apparently, that's a promise that Paul claimed for himself that God had uh, that God had given him. Because the original uh, promise there in Isaiah forty nine was one that uh, uh, that talked about uh, Messiah. And when and the, and the Jewish people as well, and when the Gentiles heard this, heard what that the Gentiles could uh, could that that the, the gospel was coming to them, that salvation was going to come to them. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Watch out now! And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now I don't. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that phrase, but I do want to point it out to you. Don't get the cart before the horse. It, notice what it does not say. It does not say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. It says as many as were had already been appointed to eternal life 
believed. That is the doctrine of divine election right there. And that'll that'll come up later on. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. And so that's the reason in um, chapter 14 of Acts, we see them going on to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, those other three cities. It says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by... Uh, by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they preached the gospel. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Notice, there, there's a group of people who are following Paul and Barnabas. Wherever they go and preach, there's this group that follows them. And they stir up trouble, uh, they incite riots, they get them run out of town and then there's something else that they do that we're about to get to. The Jews from Antioch, but Jews from Antioch and Iconium and having uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derby. Finally, when the mission is over, they make their way back to the home church of uh, at their there at uh, at Antioch and it's after they return is when Paul writes this first letter his very first letter that we have that he wrote uh, to the churches at uh, at Galatia uh, and the reason that we believe that he wrote it at this one of the reasons that we believe that he wrote it at this point is because, uh, and this is probably around a late uh, AD 48 to somewhere in 49, the reason that's proposed is because the Jerusalem Council, which takes place in Acts chapter 15, met in late AD 49 to 50 to address some of these same issues that Paul is going to address. And yet, in Paul's letter, as important as those findings were and those uh, those declarations were of that first Jerusalem, that Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Paul makes no mention of that meeting whatsoever in the letter. If that meeting had taken place before, he surely would have uh, would have mentioned it. So that's the reason we uh, we believe that uh, the letter's written right after they get back from. Uh, from the missionary tour, um, and that would make sense because you've got these people following them who are stirring up trouble, and then some of them are staying behind. The false teachers are staying behind. That would be the Judaizers, and we're really creating problems. And uh, so that brings us to the first few verses of uh, 
of Galatians chapter 1. So this letter is a follow-up to the missionary tour uh, that uh, saw that uh, Paul and Barnabas had uh, had just completed. Now let's uh, let's read, and we'll begin to get a we'll begin to get a taste for uh, Paul's writings. And he begins, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. And it's addressed to the churches of Galatia. What Paul is doing here is he is beginning to defend the uh, the origin of his commission. Notice he said, "Look, I'm I am an apostle. I didn't get my apostleship from some men. I didn't go to Jerusalem to get them to lay their hands on me. It didn't come from a man. It didn't come through men. Nobody taught me this sort of thing. It came through Jesus Christ Himself." And he's going to talk about that revelation that uh, that he had received. Now this is an interesting way that Paul begins this letter because if you read his other letters, uh, for example, if you read, say, the first, uh, what we call the... Uh, 1 Corinthians. When you read the beginning of that, Paul writes, uh, writes, Oh, grace and peace, and I'm, I'm so thankful for you, and I praise the Lord for you. You're not behind in any spiritual gift. It's great that things are working for you there. And yet, one of the things, well, there's several, uh, the, the church at Corinth had problems. I mean, it had real problems. There was some guy who was having sex with his stepmother. People were getting drunk uh, when they'd go to the, uh, have, have the communion or the Lord's Supper. Uh, there were just, uh, there were divisions within the church. Uh, they were pitting Paul and against uh, Peter and, uh, well, we don't follow either one of those. Only one, the only person we follow is Jesus. I mean, there were just there were all kinds of problems, and yet Paul begins the letter by thanking God for them and 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 saying nice things. And yet, in this letter, essentially, what Paul does is when he begins the letter, he pulls two forty fives out of his holsters and just begins to blast away. Now, why is that? Well. Paul, in, in writing to the Corinthians, who clearly had problems, is going to address those problems. But the problems that the Corinthians were having were behavioral problems. They were doing the wrong thing. They Clearly, they were sinning in the things that they were doing. Paul was going to address that and said, look, you guys have got to deal with this. This stuff can't be going on in, in the church. But it was a behavioral kind of thing. They had the, they had the gospel right, but they were living wrong. In the letter to the Galatians, what was happening is these false teachers had come in and they were perverting the gospel. And Paul says, hey, if the foundation's wrong, everything else is going to be wrong. And so he just comes in blasting away. That's, that's the reason uh, he abruptly uh, begins to talk about his, uh, his apostleship. He said, He does say grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And then there's a doxology, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But the Gospel is at stake. 
And notice what the very next thing that he says. Now he, he's got the he's got the guns blasting right now. He says, "I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one." He says, "I'm I cannot believe what you people are doing." And notice, he doesn't say that they are deserting the gospel. He says they are deserting Him, talking about Christ. You are quickly deserting Him who called you, or deserting God who called you in the grace of Christ. And he says you're turning to a different gospel. The word different there is the word heteros, which means uh, another of a different kind. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different breed altogether. He says not that there is another one. And that word another there, is the word alas, which means another of the same kind. He says, you're turning to a gospel of a different kind, but not that there really is a gospel of, 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 of another kind. Because if, it's, if the gospel's been perverted, it's no longer the gospel. It's not good news. You know, the good news is that Jesus has, uh, has died for the sins of His people. He's been raised from the dead. He has uh, ascended to the right hand of the Father through faith in Him. In Him alone, we have salvation. And if you add anything to that or take anything of that away, you no longer have the gospel. You don't have another gospel. You just don't have any gospel at all. He says, not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you. And the word trouble there means to stir up agitation. They are agitating you. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's the Judaizers who now remember what they're saying. And uh, you know, a half truth is a whole lot more dangerous than just an out and out lie. Because a, a lot of times you can spot an out and out lie, but if you if you mix uh, untruth with truth, sometimes it's hard to hard to pick it up. And he says this, and this oh, I'm telling you, he's, he the guns are blazing. But even if we that is, we who came and preached to you. If we or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. You know what that means, let him be accursed? It means let him be damned to hell forever. Whoever these people are who are coming in, who are telling you that you not only need to trust in Jesus, but you also need to go trusting in the law and you need to start keeping kosher, you, you guys need to be circumcised, you need to start keeping the Sabbath, you need to start following all these rules and regulations. He says, damn them all to hell. And not only does he say that, but he says it again. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be eternally damned. Let him be accursed. And uh, when he says, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you, uh, you can put old Moroni in that, uh, in that group right there. And then he says, you remember one of the things that they, the, the Judaizers were accusing Paul of 
was being a man pleaser. He said, you know, that watered down gospel. The reason he's preaching that to you is because that just that's just so easy, and uh, he he just he's just trying to get on your good side. And then he says, he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man? Do I, do I sound like I'm trying to get your approval when I say these things to you? Or am I seeking the approval of God by what I'm preaching? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man... Now notice, that's an interesting phrase. If I were still trying to please man. When was he trying to please man? That was back during his days of being a Pharisee. Oh yeah, you know, he, of course he wanted to please God, but he was in competition with those other Pharisees. You know, I, he even says of himself in one of his other letters, "Oh, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees." You know, his his credentials were the best that you could have. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. His astonishment here is followed by his indignation that all this is going on. See that he's got opposition from the Jews who were antagonistic to the gospel message in the first place, and then you've got these professing uh, 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 people who they were professing to be believers, but they apparently many of them were not the Judaizers who were saying, "Yeah, Jesus is a good start, but you need to add this other stuff to it." It's 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 Jesus plus which means that Jesus is not enough. Now, what's, what's, uh, what's the message for us from this? Uh, we'll, we'll really get into the, to the letter the next time. I think the first thing we can conclude is that there's only one true gospel, and it's the gospel of God's grace in Christ. There are no alternative gospels. There are only perverted ones, and when they're perverted, they're no longer even the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is only one way. Jesus said He was the only way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. The Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is only there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The true gospel always magnifies God's grace in Christ. When Jesus hung on the cross, He cried next to the last thing He said was, It is finished. He did not say, I've done all I can do, and now it's up to you to go and do some other stuff over here, and then you can be saved. No, it's finished. Salvation was accomplished for all of God's people. Tampering with the gospel only brings trouble to the people of God. It certainly did for the folks there in Galatia. This false so-called gospel is unsettling. It unsettles the mind. It unsettles the heart. And the reason for that is clear. If, if, more, if more than faith in the finished work of, of Christ is required, how much is going to be enough? If I can help save myself by doing stuff, then it only follows that I can become lost again by not keeping up doing stuff. See, the, a, a false gospel is, is damning as well, as Paul has said. When you mix grace with rule-keeping, now that appeals 
to our human nature. It appeals, particularly in the Western world, it it appeals to our self-reliance. But what it also does is it shifts our alliance from Christ to something that we do. You know, it's Christ plus baptism. Christ plus giving to the church. Christ plus serving. Christ plus being good. What's wrong with baptism or being good or working in the food pantry or working uh, at the clothing bank or uh, giving money? There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but not one of those things makes us more acceptable to God. Christ alone makes us acceptable to the Father. That's what His work on the cross accomplished. So we need to ask ourselves, upon what am I resting my eternal hope? Is it on Christ and Christ alone? Or is it on Christ plus something that I do? And if it is the latter, that is shaky ground. I love that old hymn by Edward Mote. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Again, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. What is a frame? A frame is a structural system. No matter what the system of merit is that we can come up with, Moat writes, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. The sweetest thing I can come up with myself. I dare not trust in that. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. Praise be to God. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.